Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, as we begin, I want you to think about a question. What makes you, you? What makes you who you are? Or what are some of your defining features? Or when someone thinks of you, what do they think of? For me, one of my most defining features I have learned is that I'm bald. <laughs> now, I don't want this to be a defining feature of mine, but I've just come to, the, come to grips with the fact that it is. And not just because I'm bald, but because it's something that everybody comments on. And I did not know this about bald people, that when you do go bald or when you lose your hair, everybody comments on it. Strangers, uh, people that walk past in the grocery store, it happens all the time. In fact, this just happened a couple times over the past few weeks. Uh, about a month or so ago, we were in Michigan, and we were visiting some family, and we were over at my wife's sister's house. And we were over there, and one of their neighbors came over, and he was like bringing something over, and I was walking out of the house kind of away from him. And as I'm walking away, I hadn't like said hi or said anything to him. I didn't even realize he was there. He calls over to me and goes, hey, where'd your hair go? <laughs> it's a good one. And so I, I give him the response I give to everyone of like, oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> but later on, the, the, they're they kind of asking me, they're like, you know, sorry if that offended you. You know, it, it, did that bother you that he said that? And I was like, honestly, it happens so much, I don't even think about it. People, it happens in the grocery store. Like, I'll walk past. It's always men, obviously. It's always guys. They have to comment on the fact that I don't have any hair. And what I didn't know is that once you, when you kind of, uh, when you go bald, there, people that are bald have this weird pride in their baldness, which I was unaware of. Like, I've come to grips with the fact that I'm bald. Life goes on. It's not, it doesn't really bother me. I'm not proud of it. Like, it, it's not like I would choose it for myself. But bald guys are weirdly into the fact that they're bald. In fact, this happened a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. If you're new with us at New City, um, about a year or so ago, we sent out a church plant uh, called Citizens Church in Kernersville, North Carolina. And about a year ago was their launch service. And so we were over there for their launch service. And I'd shown up a little late, so I was standing in the back. And it was, it was a packed house, so it was standing room only. And so I'm standing in the back with some people I didn't know. And it was in the middle of worship. Lights are down. My eyes are closed. People are singing. And all of a sudden, in the middle, like dead middle of a song, I feel a hand on my shoulder, and someone whisper like an inch from my ear, like whisper into my ear, it just says, hey, nice haircut. I'm like, what? And I turn around, and it's this guy walking away from me who I've never met, never seen again in my life, but who's bald and gives me the old bald guy salute. He looks back at me and is like, like, it's like, yeah. <laughs> like, never seen another one of us before, but thanks. And, and, but this is a, a weird thing, uh, a weird thing that bald guys are weirdly into themselves being bald. And like, you know, I've come to grips with the fact that that's kind of who I am, but everyone has to comment on it. In fact, I've, made, I've joked with people before that my life verse has become the verses, if you're familiar, in the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, where some kids are making fun of the prophet Elisha for being bald, so he summons bears out of the woods to come and eat them. I'm like, hmm. Like, I feel heard in those verses. Uh, but, but there's been different times in my life where I've kind of found my identity or who I was in different things. Like if I look back to when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I was really into a certain kind of music. And my life revolved around music. Like all my money went to going to shows on the weekend, buying band shirts, buying CDs, buying whatever I could. My whole life revolved around the music I liked. Time went forward a little bit, and then my whole life for a period of time revolved around whether or not I was in a relationship, and whether or not I was in a relationship with a very specific person. And luckily, I married her, so that one's going good. <laughs> but whether we were together or not, like everything hung on that for me. 
And you know, I'm from the Detroit area, so we, re we like cars up there. We like big trucks, and we like cars with big engines. So there was a period of my time where I was really into whatever kind of car I was driving. That was the most important thing, was what kind of car I had. And that was where I found my identity. And then as, as we get into, further into adulthood, it was whether or not we were married, whether or not had kids. There are different things that throughout my life I've found kind of who I am in. And so this is the question I want to ask you this morning. It's where do you find your value? Where do you find your value? Where do you, what do you kind of put your value in? Or what makes you, you? Is it in what you do for a living? Is that the kind of go-to question when you meet someone is, what do you do for a living in hopes that they'll ask you back because you're so proud of what you do? Is it in the things that you're into? Is it in what you wear? Are you, you have to look and dress a certain way, and if not, then you're not really feeling yourself that day. Is it in your hobbies? Is it in validation from others? Do you live your life on social media because you live and die on whether or not you get validation and recognition from other people? Where do you find your value? Well, today we're going to be looking at a story of a man who essentially had his identity or his value assigned to him by society. We're looking at a man who had his value kind of given to him, but regardless of the identity that society gave to him, he didn't let that define him, and he found his identity in Jesus. So today, if you want to open up with me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Today we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one in one of the seatbacks uh, in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one home as our gift to you today. But today we're continuing our study through the book of Mark, and we're going to be looking at the last of Jesus' healing miracles. So you've seen Jesus perform a handful of miracles where he's healed people. This is the last of his healing miracles in the book of Mark. And this is, what we're going to see him do is we're going to see him heal a blind man. And this is similar to what we saw him do back in Mark chapter 8, if you were with us back when we went through Mark chapter 8. And what these two stories do is they serve as kind of like literary bookends to the three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we saw him heal a blind man, then we see three predictions of his death and resurrection, and then today we're going to see him heal another blind man, kind of putting a cap on this section. Now what's interesting is in these healing stories, as we see him healing these people that are blind, the disciples, the people that are following him, their kind of spiritual blindness is being emphasized here as well. So while Jesus is healing these people's physical blindness, at the same time, he's addressing and healing the disciples' spiritual blindness. So what's happening here as we get into the story is Jesus and his followers are on their way to Jerusalem. As we've kind of been seeing over the past few weeks, they're making their journey into Jerusalem where, well, where Jesus will have his kind of triumphant entry into the city, uh, where they're going for uh, the, the last, his last Passover meal before he's crucified and put to death or what we've become, what's become known as the Last Supper. And so that they're about to enter into Jerusalem, and then we pick up today in chapter 10, verse 46, and it says this. It says, They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. Now, someone begging outside the city gates was a pretty common sight, because if you were blind in those days, you, your life kind of depended on begging from other people. You couldn't work. You couldn't provide for yourself. There weren't social programs set up to help you. Your, your livelihood depended on asking people for money. Now, so seeing him was not unusual, but what is unusual here is that Mark records his name. If you've, if you've kind of noticed all the healing miracles we've seen, Mark doesn't really record people's names that are healed, but he records his name, Bartimaeus. And he even takes it a step further, says, son of Timaeus. So why does he record his name? Now, likely he records his name because most likely he, this man ended up going on to do something that the, Mark's original readers would have known him for, went on to have some sort of influence in the church. But the fact that they say that he is the son of Timaeus 
is, is really important, because that's, that's what his name uh, means. It's Bartimaeus. It means son of Timaeus. And the name Timaeus, his father's name, means someone who is valued highly. So this man that we're talking about, he's someone who is looked down on by society. He's someone who is looked down on because of his disability. And the most he could say for himself is that he's the son of someone who's valued. Not that he's valued, but that he's the son of somebody that is valued. So we continue in verse 47. It says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So it's clear, obviously, that he knew, or he had heard about Jesus before, because he's crying out by his title, son of David, have mercy on me. And what's interesting here is that Jesus does nothing to silence him. If, if, if you've been with us for, uh, this, for the book of Mark, we've seen multiple times where people call Jesus by name or by title, and he silences them, he quiets them. He doesn't want that his title or who he is kind of getting out. But what we're seeing here is Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, where all of his messianic purposes are going to uh, be fulfilled, where the reason he came is going to be fulfilled. And so we're seeing that it's no longer a secret who he is. He, it's no longer a secret. He's not uh, silencing Bartimaeus. He's letting it be known that he's the son of David. And so he's crying out. He's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 48, it says, many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. So this is where we see kind of what people thought about him. People were silencing him. People were quieting him, telling him, be quiet, don't call out. Now, what's interesting is the people that were with Jesus, that were in this crowd, would have seen him perform miracles before. They would have seen him heal people. They, could have, they, they likely would have known that he had the power and he had the ability to heal this man. But even though they knew he could be healed, they still told him, hey, be quiet. Don't interrupt. Be quiet. And what's interesting is if you are blind in these days, the last thing you want to do is get on people's bad side. Your livelihood depends on people having sympathy towards you. So if people are telling you to be quiet, you're going to be quiet. If people are telling you stop, you're going to stop. Because you're not going to be the one to rile people up because if people are upset with you, they're not going to give you anything. And that's how you live. That's how you eat. But even still, he still called out, even though they were trying to tell him to be quiet. Now, the reason that people are looking down on him, the reason that people are treating him this way, is not just, it's because he's blind, but it's not just because he can't contribute to society. But blindness in these days was looked at as almost like a curse. People looked at it as, as if you sinned or maybe your parents sinned, and so this is God punishing you. In fact, we see in the book of John, you don't need to turn there, these couple verses will be on the screen. We see Jesus and his disciples see a blind man, and his disciples say, or what happens in, ver in John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So being blind wasn't something that garnered sympathy from people. People saw it as a curse, that you deserve what you have. You deserve this blindness that's been given to you. So you didn't want to upset people, but even still, he still cried out and said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And despite people telling him to be quiet, Jesus has a different response. And we see that in verse 49. It says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. So despite Jesus' uh, mission of getting to Jerusalem, Despite what he, was, uh, what he was there to do, where he was going, despite Bartimaeus' low social status, Jesus still stops for him. Jesus still stops to care for his issues. 
Jesus cared for this issue that most people didn't care about. It's, 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 it's something that most people saw as insignificant. And it makes me think of my son. We have a, we have a two-year-old son. His name's Theodore. Um, and one of his favorite things on the planet right now are buses. <laughs> buses. And when he says it, he really gets the B. He's like, it's a bus. It's a bus. And he loves buses. He loves any kind of car, any vehicle. But when he sees cars, he'll point out it's a car. But when it's anything that's not a car, it's a bus. So trucks are buses. Buses are buses. Right now, airplanes are buses. <laughs> He'll hear, hear an airplane in the sky, He'll point up and be like, a bus. I'm like, buddy, it's a plane. It's like, a bus. I'm like, all right, it's a bus. But he loves seeing all kinds of cars. But when he sees a, specifically a yellow school bus, yellow is also his favorite color right now. Um, when he sees a yellow school bus, he gets so excited. Like, it's yellow. He really gets the L's in yellow. It's yellow bus. He gets so excited. Every morning when the school buses go by, he watches out the windows. It's the best time of day. But when we're driving, we're driving somewhere in the car. You know, obviously, he's in the back seat. He's in a car seat. He has kind of limited uh, field of vision. Or we can see what's going on. If we see a bus coming up that he doesn't see yet, we'll point it out to him. We're like, buddy, it's a bus. And he'll start looking around. Then he'll see it. He'll be like, a bus. A bus. Sometimes he gets like an old man voice. He's like, a bus. <laughs> like, a bus. That's right. And um, so we'll see it come up. But what happens is we get so excited, or at least I do, I get so excited that now I start to get excited when I see a bus and he's not around. <laughs> and there's been multiple times where I've been driving and I'll see a bus coming and, you know, my heart rate will kind of go up a little bit. I'll get excited. And there's been multiple times where I've even turned around and been like, a bus <laughs> to nobody. And I realize <laughs> I'm alone. And I'm just like this weird grown man who's getting excited over skiing a school bus. But it's exciting. And if you're a parent, you've experienced this before. You get excited, you get, happy, you get interested in the things that are ultimately insignificant, but that your kids care about. Seeing a bus, who cares? Like, it's insignificant. It doesn't matter. But we care about it because he cares about it. And it's just like how a parent cares about the insignificant things that their kids care about. God cares about the things that his children care about, even if, in the grand scheme of things, they may seem insignificant. And so what I want you to see here today is that your problems matter to God. Your problems matter to God. And it, what we're seeing here is in the grand scheme of things, Bartimaeus' story, it's, it's a little insignificant compared to everything that's going on. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. He's about to, all of these, the purposes of why he came are about to be fulfilled, where he's going to die on the cross, where he's going to resurrect, where he's going to bring the possibility of salvation to all of humanity. He's performed many healing miracles before, in fact, this section, it's a pretty short section right here in the book of Mark. He could have not addressed this issue, and we would have still had the Bible. Everything still would have happened the way that the reason that he came still would have been fulfilled, but he still stopped. See, he cared about something that was in the grand scheme of things, maybe a little insignificant, but he cared about it because his children cared about it. See, I wonder how often we go to God with something. I, wonder if, I don't know if you've done this before but with something that's, and then kind of feel guilty that, that maybe that's a little too insignificant to come to God for. This isn't a life or death issue. I know people that are going through much bigger things. I feel kind of guilty asking God for this or feel kind of guilty praying for this. Now, what I want you to know that I don't think God sees you that way. I don't think he sees the things that we care about as insignificant because a loving father cares for his children and cares about the things that his children care about. So as we continue in, uh, 
Chapter 10, verse 51, we see what happens next. See, it says, uh, he threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And then verse 51 says, Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? So this begs the question, why does Jesus ask him what he wants him to do, what he wants him to do for him? Obviously, he was blind. Obviously, he could see what the issue was. Why didn't Jesus just heal him? Why does he ask, what do you want me to do for you? What he's doing right here, what's happening is Jesus is giving this man an opportunity to show his faith. He's giving this blind man that didn't have much uh, rights, didn't have much ability, didn't have, couldn't work for himself. Most people looked down on him. He was giving this man agency and allowing him to show his faith, and he was encouraging him to express his needs and his faith in Jesus. And what's really interesting here is if we look at this and we kind of contrast it with the verses that we looked at last week, where we see Jesus' disciples come to him and ask for something, we see two similar but very different stories. So if you're with us last week, I'm going to, go, I'm going to rewind and read just a couple verses that we covered last week. Um, and, and I want to kind of compare it to what Bartimaeus is doing here today and look at the differences here. If we rewind to verses we covered last week in verse 35 of chapter 10, we see James and John, two of the disciples. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him, being Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and your left in glory. So look at the differences in how they ask versus how Bartimaeus asks. These are, these are his disciples. These are the people that were closest to him. These are the, the spiritual ones. These are the ones that knew him the best. And they come to him and they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. And Bartimaeus, this blind man, comes to him and says, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And what do they ask for? They ask to be seated at his right and his left in glory. And what does he ask for? What does he ask for? He asks for mercy. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as we continue in verse 51, it says, uh, Jesus answered him. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And, it's, and he says, he responds, he says, Rabboni, which means my Lord or my teacher, the blind man said to him, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. So not only was Jesus willing to hear his needs, but he fulfilled his needs. He didn't look at this blind beggar the way the other people did. He didn't look at him in the way that society did. Jesus saw him for who he was, and he sees you and he sees me the same way that he saw him. So I want you to hear this morning is if you're struggling, if there's something you're struggling in your life and that you're, you've been asking Jesus for help with, if you have something you've been going to Jesus for, whether it's something significant or insignificant, I want us to ask the question, do we actually have faith that he can do what we're asking him to do? Or to put it another way, do you believe that Jesus can actually move in your life? Do you believe Jesus can actually move in the way that you're asking him to move? Or are we praying because it's the Christian thing to do? Praying because I know if there's someone in need, I should pray for him. If I have a need, I know I should pray. That's just what I've been taught to do. Or do we actually believe that he can move in the ways that we're asking him to move. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that if you, if, if you have prayers that haven't been answered the way that you want them to be answered, it's because you don't have enough faith. This is not to say that if you just pray hard enough, you're going to get everything you want. Not at all. But I think, you should, I think we need to ask ourselves that if I'm praying for something, am I praying for it because I actually have faith Jesus can uh, do something here? Or am I just praying because I'm going through the motions? Am I just praying because it's part of what we do as followers of Jesus? See, Jesus wants you to come to him with your needs. It doesn't mean every prayer is going to be answered in the way that we necessarily want it to be answered, in the way that we think is best, 
but Jesus wants you to come to him with your needs, the big and the small. And the reason is not because he has to, not because he has to listen to you, but because he loves you and a loving father cares for his children. As we continue in verse 52, as we close out this section, we see what happens. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. And then it says, immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. So last week we saw James and John asking to be at Jesus' right and left. And Dylan brought up the point last week when he was preaching. He said, wanting something from Jesus is not the same as wanting Jesus. But what we can see here from Bartimaeus' story is that he legitimately wanted Jesus. He wanted to be with him. He followed him along the road. Once his sight was restored, the first thing he did is he followed Jesus. And what I want us to see here is that following Jesus starts with faith in Jesus. Following Jesus, if we want to have a relationship with Jesus, it starts with having faith in Jesus. That's the first thing Jesus asked him. The first thing Jesus tells him, he says, your faith has saved you. Jesus didn't heal Bartimaeus to prove his power. He didn't didn't do it to win his faith over. He didn't do it to prove to other people who he was. He did it because of his faith. And immediately, he followed Jesus. He didn't see Jesus as a means to an end. Once his prayers were answered, so to speak, once what, ha- what, what he wanted to happen happened, which was for him to be healed, he didn't, he didn't go off and do other things. There's a lot of things he could do. We don't know from his story. He, we don't have a lot of details. We don't know if he was blind from birth or if his blindness came later in life. But regardless of how long you've been blind, the world's a colorful place. There's a lot to see. And there's a lot to do. If you've spent your life having to beg from people, beg for money, he could have gone to work. He could have seen this and and done things that were good things to do. Gone and told people what what happened to him. Gone and shown his family or people that he knew, this is what what I can do now. Or gone and actually uh, made a living for himself, done something he couldn't have done before. But instead of doing these things, which, which all of are pretty important things, he instead does the most important thing. And he follows Jesus. See, today is Palm Sunday. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday. And in Mark chapter 11, the next section that we're about to get into is uh, the, 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 the record of what happened on Palm Sunday, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, his kind of triumphant entry into the city where he will uh, uh, ultimately be killed and resurrect. But what we're seeing here, Jesus following, or Bartimaeus following Jesus, means that most likely he was with him as he entered Jerusalem. He was with him in this triumphant entry that we celebrate today on Palm Sunday as he entered into Jerusalem. And now him, him following him, this little detail it adds, it's not uh, coincidental and it's not insignificant at all. In fact, as we see Jesus being called the son of David, being followed into the city by a formerly blind man, contrasts what we see from King David all the way, in the, all the way back in the book of 2 Samuel. So I'm going to flip back to 2 Samuel. These couple of verses are going to be on the screen. I find this really interesting, but stick with me for a few minutes because it's a little bit of detail here. All the way back in 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, what we see right before these couple of verses we're going to read is the king, King Saul, had just died. And David had just become anointed, was just anointed king over Israel. And one of the first things that happens in kind of the record of his kingship is him uh, invading and attacking Jerusalem to, to, to reclaim it, to take it back over. Jerusalem had been taken over by this group of people called the Jebusites. And so David is leading an army to invade, to take Jerusalem, the same city that Jesus is about to enter, back over for the Israelites. And so that's what's happening as we, as we get to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, and it says this. It says, The king, being David, and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. And the Jebusites had said to David, You will never get in here. Even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. 
What they're saying here is our fortifications are so strong, our strongholds are so strong that we don't even need able-bodied men. They're saying, even if all of our, uh, even if all of our uh, defenders, even if all of our people were blind and lame, you still couldn't get in here. That's how strong our city is. Now, if we look in verse 8, it says this. He says, he said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft. This is a tunnel that they would take to get into Jerusalem. Must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are despised by David. For this reason, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. What never enter the house means is that they will never enter the temple or never enter David's palace. And so what we see here is David talking about the blind and the lame. In this case, they're kind of a euphemism for the Jebusites as obstacles to get past to enter Jerusalem. But what we see Jesus do is we see him welcome a blind man to come with him as he enters that same city of Jerusalem to be with him on his triumphant entry into the city right before, right as the whole purpose of why he's coming is being fulfilled. See, unlike the way David talked about the blind and the lame, and unlike those who tried to silence Bartimaeus, Jesus still saw value in him. So I'm curious if there's ever a time where you felt valueless or you felt uh, worthless. Um, If I'm being honest, this is a a feeling, an emotion that has been a large part of my life, especially growing up. There were large parts of my life, like I talked about earlier, where I tried to find value, my worth, my meaning in anything I could find that wasn't God. Anything that I could find that wasn't God. Anything that would give me some joy, that was who I was. And where did that leave me? That left me for a pretty extended period of time of pretty bitter depression, of pretty bitter hatred and anger, of just isolation, not wanting to be around anybody. And honestly, ultimately culminated in a period of time where I just wanted to end my life. This is where I was. This is where you can be when trying to find our worth in things of this world. And if you've ever felt worthless, if you've ever felt valueless, if you've ever felt like that before, I want you to know that just like how Bartimaeus was valuable to Jesus, you are valuable to Jesus. Not some metaphorical you as in God so loved the world and I'm in the world, so everybody, but you, by name, specifically, matter to Jesus. And if you've ever struggled with feeling like you didn't matter, I want you to hear that you're valuable to God. And and, and if this is something you struggle with, what I want to do now is I'm going to jump all the way over to the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to read a chunk of text here. These verses will be up on the screen. It's kind of long. I'm just going to read it straight through. But this is the opening of the book of Ephesians of Paul uh, writing his letter to the believers in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. And this is what Paul is saying, that if you are in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, then these attributes belong to you. Now in this section, this whole section I'm about to read in the original Greek is one long run-on sentence. So this isn't a bunch of thoughts stitched together, but this is one continuous thought of who you are if you are a follower of Jesus. So I'm going to read this straight through. It's a little long. You can follow with me on the screen, or if you want to just sit back and listen, that's fine. But this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace 
that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who, who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory." Now, that was a long section, and I get long biblical sections sometimes can be a little hard to follow, and there's a lot of Christian phrases in there, Bible phrases in there. So in case you missed, I want to break this down, in case you missed the laundry list of attributes that Paul says you have if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what this text said. It says, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are. In verse 3, it said, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, it says, you are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, again, it says, you are blameless in love. Verse 5, you are predestined. Verse 5, again, you are adopted as sons. Verse 6, God's glorious grace has been lavished on you. Verse 7, you have been redeemed through his blood. Verse 7, again, you have been forgiven. Verse 8, grace has been richly poured out on you. Verse 8, again, you have been given wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, the mystery of his will was made known to you. Verse 11, you have received an inheritance. Verse 11, again, you have been predestined according to his plan. Verse 13, you are sealed in him. Verse 14, you are for his glory. And all that is in the first sentence of the book. This is who you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been adopted by God. You are a part of his family. You are a part of God's family, and your identity is rooted in in God. Amen. You see, our son that I talked about earlier, Theo, he's adopted. He's adopted, but from the moment we met him, from the moment he was wheeled into the hospital room when we were waiting, he was an Androsian. He was our son. He was a part of our family from the moment we saw him. There's never an asterisk by his name. Any other children that come into our family, any other children in our extended family, he is still welcomed as, as much of a part of our family as anyone else that is. But you know, when he, when he came into our family, when he was born, it was end of 2019, late 2019, and that was right as COVID was starting, and so courts were slow getting things processed. So his adoption wasn't finalized for 14 months. So for the first year and two months of his life, his legal name was Baby Boy. <laughs> and there was nothing we could do about it. So when we would go to pediatrician appointments, we'd have to check him in as Baby Boy. But even though his legal name from day one, his legal name in that period of time was Baby Boy, from day one, he was an Androsian. From day one, he was a part of our family. From day one, he had a name. And this is what I want you to see is that if you are in Jesus, you have a name. If you've ever struggled to feel valuable, hear this. You will always feel valueless. You will always feel insignificance when you're trying to find your value in anything of this world. And what I want you to hear today, if you hear nothing else, what I want you to hear today is this. It's that Jesus gives value to the valueless. Jesus is where we find our value. If you are in Jesus, you are no longer baby boy. If you are in Jesus, you are no longer baby girl. You are no longer human number seven billion whatever, but you have a name. You have a name to God. Not only does Jesus value the faithful, but he values the doubter. He values the one who struggles. He values the one that society deems as valueless. He values you, even in your struggles, 
even in your addictions, even in your depression, even, even when you don't value yourself, he sees value in you. See, you were made in God's image. I was made in God's image. You were bought at a price. You are valuable to God, and that value is given to us through Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He did what we're, we're getting ready to celebrate next week, where he came and he gave. He came and lived a literal life, a physical life here on earth, and gave his life, his sinless life. They didn't deserve to take any punishment, but he gave his life so that you and I could experience eternal life with him. He took the punishment that we deserved, died a death that he didn't deserve, and rose again so ultimately we could be in communion with Christ, so ultimately we could have life, even though we don't deserve it. Jesus gives value to the valueless. And if you're struggling to find value, hear this. If you are in Jesus, you have value. 